Welcome to Professional Planner's new Ethics and Professionalism podcast series. I'm Matthew Smith, and I'm Head of Retail Content at Conexus and editor of Professional Planner magazine. In this new series, we will engage an ethics expert and a practitioner to talk through real-life ethical scenarios advisors encounter in their everyday professional lives. How individuals act or react when faced with an ethical dilemma will come down to a culmination of factors, including their backgrounds, experiences, education, situational and environmental factors. We've asked advisors, you guys out there, to submit real-life ethical scenarios you may have faced, both client-facing and dilemmas relating to employment structures or situations, with the intention of unpacking these in light of FASIA's new Code of Ethics. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Alan Gray, the Contrarian Investment Manager. Less following the pack, more conviction. That's the Alan Gray difference. Go to alangray.com.au to find out more. Now, we're lucky to have two um, great professionals and experts uh, in their fields uh, with us today, uh, Dr. Catherine Hunt from Griffith University and also from the Gold Coast, um, Felicity Cooper. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks um, for having us. Yeah, absolutely. Look, uh, I'll, I'll do a short bio for each each of you and then we'll we'll launch into uh, to, uh, the series. Um Dr. Catherine Hunt holds a PhD in law and economics from Erasmus University, Rotterdam, University of Bologna, and University of Hamburg. Catherine has graduated from Griffith University with a Bachelor of Psychological Science, Bachelor of Commerce, Financial Planning, and Bachelor of Finance with first class honours. Catherine actually started her career working as a financial planner for Aspire Financial Planning from 2007 to 2011, during which time she ran the FPA Young Planners Committee on the Gold Coast and was a member of the FPA National Conference Committee. Catherine transitioned to academia and is now full-time lecturer at Griffith University's Business School Master of Financial Planning program. Most recently, Catherine was responsible for setting up Griffith University's Financial Planning Ethics program. And in her spare time, she's an avid traveler and she surfs in her secret spot just south of Cabarita on New South Wales North Coast. Felicity Cooper is a CFP and director of Cooper Wealth Management. Felicity is based on the Gold Coast. She serves clients all over all over Australia and has done so through the span of almost two decades. Previously, Felicity worked with brokerage firms JB Weir, Goldman Sachs, um, Macquarie, and Morgan's before obtaining her own license so that she could provide independent financial planning advice to her clients. Felicity won the 2018 FPA. Financial Planner Professional of the Year Award and was runner-up for this award in 2017. Catherine, to you first, you um, left financial planning in 2011 uh, and went into academia. Um, did you ever think in advance of, of doing that that we would be in a situation where, where um, education is so paramount within the financial planning industry? I never anticipated it. Yeah. Absolutely not. I remember first getting my uh, AR status with PIS back then and I remember the difficulties of getting my degree recognised by them because they were used to getting the RG146 certificates. Mm. It just it wasn't a done thing when I started. And even when I left, it, I still felt like it was, it was the way we were going but that it wouldn't become something really complicated. 
or something that advisors would push back against either. So I'm really excited by by how well everyone's picking it up and moving towards this education space. And I can see from my students how the attitude, it's not about ticking boxes anymore either with education. Yeah. It's about how can I grow? What can I learn? Can you take me through a little bit uh, about the ethics program you're working on at Griffith University? Yeah, absolutely. So we've been teaching ethics and professionalism for since 2014. But recently we've got the approved FASIA ethics course, of course, as most institutions who want to teach in that space do. And so the process is building a course with industry feedback, of course. So we have the structure and then we reach out to our networks and get feedback on what needs to be incorporated, how. And, of course, we have a a nice academic stale uh, structure around, say, ethical theories and that kind of thing. And then we make sure that we have the practical application of all of those components. Mm. And I'm a little bit of a nerd, so I'm quite interested in how can ethics actually be incorporated into, say, business processes rather than just putting it all onto the individuals. I tell my students, you are all future leaders of financial services firms. Mm. So I don't want you to only think as if you're an advisor right now, but also as if you're a future leader building the systems and procedures of the firm that you're in charge of. Mm. Because that's quite interesting because the um, ethics code appears to, and you're obviously more of an expert in it than I am, and we'll hear from Felicity in a moment, but appears to really engage the individual um, um, rather than, you know, the business structures per se around them. Um, how do you, do, do you, is that how you see it and is that what? what kind of oh, mean? absolutely, yeah. So we have this individual accountability mm. as professionals. But what we see as, as will come up in the various scenarios we'll discuss later is that as individuals, as we know what's the right thing to do, but we also know that as individuals, people have mortgages to pay and people have their own challenges that they're going through. So it's, it's not helpful to say, um, for example, no one can seek to have a financial benefit from having more clients rather than less. If the KPI for that individual financial planner says, well, you get your bonus based on how many clients you have and how much revenue you bring in, then the problem isn't the advisor's focus necessarily, Mm. or maybe that is one of the problems, but the broader problem is the systems, the procedures, and the incentives created by those, Mm. those KPIs. So some of those structures are... They might make it more difficult for financial advisors to individually act ethically and they are individually accountable, individually Mm. responsible to act according to the code of ethics. So the idea of me reminding my students of their future leadership roles is the idea of make it easy for your staff to act ethically. Mm. Make that the normal easy path. The easiest path is ethical ethical advice and ethical processes. Mm. Let's make it easy. Mm. We're we're kind of dealing with... Um, some uh, incumbent structures uh, that probably perhaps aren't as ethically minded as we would like them to be. So therefore, there's probably a lot of challenges in in being able to be an ethical agent within those structures. Uh, how do you how do you deal with that as a practitioner? Um, it's very complicated because we know about the structural issues yeah. in financial services firms where the incentives are such that, of course, um, the pressure is put on the firm, everyone, middle management, and then 
the kind of the frontline advisors to provide value to shareholders and to run really efficient businesses. Mm. And so the challenge I think for us is to figure out how we can be the most amazing professionals ever while still delivering that shareholder value in the larger firms. In the smaller firms, and Felicity can talk to, about that, I think it might be a bit easier to um, establish what those values are, set up the systems and procedures so that mm. ethics can be achieved straight away from day one. But in the bigger firms, it's complicated when everything comes down to the dollar. Mm. Now, and I think in the bigger yeah. firm, it sometimes is, like you say, a systems and procedures thing. So I know um, that firms that I've seen before, if you if you brought in a certain amount of revenue, then the moment you hit that, your percentage of commission or your percentage of pay automatically went up the moment you hit that. And you had to hit it by 30th of June. So if you think about it, oh, if you bring in more than $400,000 of revenue, we'll pay you 36%. If you bring in $399,000 of revenue, we'll only pay you 26%. Mm. Well, that's such a clear incentive for people in that last week of June. What do you think they're going to do? Mm. You've put a carrot in front of them to act in a way that isn't the most ethical and possibly isn't in the best interest of a client. But that is a systematic issue rather than a individual issue, mm. I think. Now, you previously worked in larger investment firms um, as an advisor, or in in more of a in a in a kind of a, within the systems or, or functions. I know uh, my background is in stockbroking. Yeah. So yeah. the the time that I was with, um, like you mentioned, JB Weir, Goldman Sachs, that was as a broker. Most of my time at Macquarie was also as a broker. So I guess these days they're both treated the same. They both fall under the same ethics requirements. They both fall mm. now under mm. the same education requirements. Um, but back then it was definitely a normal thing for stockbrokers to be on a commission-based yeah. incentive-based system. And you decided to go out and start your own licensee. Have you been able to, uh, I suppose, create a, a, you know, your own clean skin ethical agenda in a way or how, can you maybe talk through how the, the challenges involved with well, something I'm quite proud of. I guess the reason that I started my own firm was because in the end I didn't want to be aligned to any product and for me product is just something you use to achieve the strategies that you want to put in place. So being an independent firm means that we're not incentivized to use any one system. I think we have over 20 different super funds that we deal with for clients. Mm. Um, we're not tied in with anyone. There's no, you know, stock placements or IPOs or something that we have to place or that we're underwriting, which is another systematic issue in my opinion. Um, it really has just let us look after clients in the best way that we possibly can. It seems like the, the broker model is kind of coming back in a way, you know. Oh, do you, I how think do it's you interesting. Think it's, I think the broker model is is going to disappear. Yeah. Um, from the, pe the people that I know that were true brokers, hmm. um, most of them haven't done uni degrees and stuff like that. And so the idea of having to go and do study to sell shares doesn't really appeal to them. And they're probably still a little bit... Um, hurt maybe is a good word from the GFC. So, do, you know, is this all really worth it? Um, for a lot of them, I think if they want to stay in the industry, they'll become financial planners mm. and say, you know, and, and it was part of my journey to being a financial planner was here's this market that, yes, we can have great research and we can have a great 
basis for recommendation and it's been doing really well and it also outperformed to the market. But if the market falls 50%, you're still going to go down 45 And I can't control any of that. And I'm only looking at this tiny piece of the puzzle. Mm. And if I can get this right but the whole structure is wrong, then what am I really doing it for? And that was part of my reasoning for becoming a planner was to go, you actually need to get the structure right. You need to get the goals right. You need to get the why right. You need to get the emotional component of it and two people talking together. And then we can sort about talk about what investments are right for you, hmm. not just, oh, yeah, BHP looks better than Rio. Like I just think there's a much deeper conversation. But I think there's still quite a lot of firms that are still paying a lot of commission-based kind of payments to the staff or are um, percentage-based fees. So we have no percentage-based fees. We're all fixed just fee-for-service. And I think that requires a massive structural change for some of those businesses. And I know there's been a few in the press recently, you know, still arguing for percentage-based fees Mm. um, because that obviously still exists. Um, And I think that in itself, I don't know that it's a conflict, but it doesn't sit so well with me where I look at it and go, well, just because you've, worked this hard, you have this much money, you can afford to pay us this, even if maybe I just rebalance it once a year, compared to this person who, yeah, doesn't have as much money but has a very complex situation, but they don't have to pay as much for it because they don't have as much, that doesn't sit right with me. I'm a user-pays system. I'm a, the more complex it is, the more you pay, less complex, less you pay. doesn't really matter how much it is. Yeah, that's really clear. Um Catherine, if, if you stand back based on, you know, the time you've been in the industry, where do you think the advice industry is in terms of its journey to professionalism? Do you think we're halfway there at the beginning, very close to um, being considered a profession? Mm, I think we've, we've hatched uh, from our egg, so to speak. We have a really solid and amazing regulatory framework mm. we can move on from. Um, but I think that we we have a long way to go because it's not something that can be imposed on us. It's something that we need to inspire, aspire to individually. So we need to, within ourselves, or I'm not a financial advisor anymore, so each advisor needs to um, aspire to being this amazing professional that acts in the public interest. And that is an individual journey of getting there. It it's not a not a nice easy journey either you know look at look at the war zones doctors are there they're working for free they're like no I'm a professional this is what I do and for financial advisors it's going to be the same it's not about well I need to get paid it's about no you're a professional now so you act for the community and a lot of the time you won't be getting paid you'll be doing a lot of things for free and you'll be serving the community with your area of professional expertise, which is what professionals do. So that internal journey, I think, has a long way to go. The result of that internal journey, of course, will be that we will be able to judge others and hold others accountable to that same standard that we hold ourselves. And then I think, so I think that is kind of the final step. So there's those two major steps for us to go through. Because that, it doesn't sound very nice, like policing each other, but that's just the keeping each other accountable. So recognising if there's another professional who calls themselves the same thing you do and you don't think they're doing the best job that they could be doing, 
pulling them aside, taking them for a coffee and, and having a chat with them and helping them to figure out why are they doing what they're doing, getting them to understand it's affecting everyone, it will affect everyone's reputation, mm. helping them to get on the right path, whatever that looks like. Or uh, if that doesn't happen, then, of course, um, having those that be deal with that kind of thing. As so, a practitioner, Felicity, do you, do you agree with that? And have you found yourself in that position at all? Uh, well, I agree that we're still just starting as a profession and to be looked at like that through the public science, and I think that will take time as well. The Royal Commission is still very raw in everybody's mm. memories and there still are financial planners that have undoubtedly done the wrong thing and that's still getting through the system. Um, I think even that idea, though, of dobbing a another planner in and I understand it because I'm so proud of what we do. It's it's an ethical dilemma in itself. Mm. Um, at what point is somebody else's actions your responsibility? At what point do you know that by doing that um, you're going to have an impact on their lives as well? Your actions are going to impact on their lives. So it's uh, like you say, I think it's a big challenge for people in our industry going forward is to hold peers accountable to the standards that are being set and that we would set for ourselves. Hmm. Um, what about uh, the code of ethics, um, Catherine, first? Uh, um, what's your kind of overall view on the code of ethics? FASI is obvious there's been a little bit of controversy around um, you know, consultation process and, you know, we've had recently had the guidance come out. Are you happy with where the, the code of ethics has landed and um, is there anything that you would change or, or um, suggest to FASIA to, uh, to, um, to do differently? The code of ethics itself I think is, is great. It's really interesting in that it's a bit different to other codes in other professions and that's, that's just interesting because it's, it's something for us to really think about as a profession for ourselves. Um, the Code of Ethics also, I think there's at least twice where it mentions just within the standards, conflict of interest and best interest duty. So we can see that there's a, an overlap in a lot of the standards. So it's not necessarily, if you really try and get to the essence, what is this standard saying? What is this standard saying? What is this standard saying? There is a lot of overlap in them. And that's really useful for us as advisors because it helps us to see, okay, well, conflict of interest, super important. Great. It, it's been mentioned a few times within these standards. So yeah. that's great. We know that. Same as best interest duty. So I really like that they're putting that emphasis on those uh, particular components and that that's how um, their wordings ended up. So yeah, I'm, I'm really happy with that. And I was thrilled to see the guidance. Um, there was a lot of uncertainty. A lot of my students and my network had um, shared with me their own discomfort in particularly standard three and understanding how it really related to them. Um, you know, is, is, does that mean this? Does that mean that? And I felt like the guidance that we got a month or so ago was, mm. is, has really helped towards mm. everyone understanding where we're at and where we can move forward from. So I've been... I've been pretty happy with everything. Because we talked before about um, being a perhaps a, a professional or an ethical 
um, aspiring ethical individual within a system that maybe has a little way to go in terms of um, promoting ethics. Um, and you mentioned standard three. Are you able to um, be able to satisfy standard three uh, in the current environment or do you think that's, you know, where's FASIA kind of going with that, do you think? I think the the explanations and the examples that they gave in the guidance yeah. about Standard 3 being conflict of interest were really quite straightforward. Okay. And really um, the standards themselves, when you read them, they're, they're quite instructive. You know, you do this and you do that and it's quite specific. Um, but then with the, the explanatory statement, of course, it was helpful as well, but, but really with the guidance it really explored and gave a lot more depth our understanding of Standard 3 in particular. So a uh, bit of uh, nighttime reading probably for all of your yeah. listeners. Felicity, did you, have you come to terms with the standard or, I mean, with, with the Code of Ethics? Uh, I, I presume it's something that just needs to be uh, used in practice, you know, um, quite regularly in order for, you know, practitioners perhaps to understand how it's going to apply to their businesses going forward. Yeah, I think it's really actually helpful to have a framework. So the problem that you've always had with ethics is that what is ethical to one person may not be ethical to a different person. So ethics without a framework or without a guideline or without explanatory notes or, you know, it it going through something like fascia, it becomes a personal ethical decision. So I think it's very important that people have that that guideline, that framework that, okay, well, you might think this is ethical, but no, we think this is ethical and here's the examples and this is how we expect you to apply that in your profession. And in the end, they're the rules. Just follow the rules. Um, I don't really know that it's up to any individual to agree or disagree with those once they're in place that it's like any of these changes, you might not like all of them, you might not agree with all of them, mm. but if you're going to be a professional within this field, then they're the rules. And and I think in the past, if anything, there's just been a lack of that framework. So I'm happy for there to be a framework. I think it probably needs a little bit more industry consultation mm. um, and certainly how quickly it comes in and how that can affect people's businesses and livelihoods, I think needs to be considered. But I think in the end, having that framework is a great thing. Yeah. We're going to move on to the ethical scenarios now. Firstly, thanks to listeners and readers of Professional Planner for submitting scenarios that we've used for this series. If you'd like to submit your own ethical scenario to be in the next series, please do so through the Professional Planner website or email me directly. You can also earn CPD points from this episode. All you have to do is follow the link from the Professional Planner homepage or visit professionalplanner.com.au slash education and answer the questions. Less following the pack, more conviction. That's the Alan Gray difference. Alan Gray take a contrarian investment approach, apply it consistently and invest for the long term. After all, you can't invest the same way as everyone else and expect a different result. Find out more at alangray.com.au. The first scenario here is uh, accounting for conflicts. I'm an accountant. Uh, SMSF specialist and I have a full AFSL. 
If I recommend an SMSF to a client and then I earn money doing the accounting, admin and tax work, do I have a conflict of interest in recommending the SMSF in the first place? Do I need to give the non-AFSL work to another accountant? Um, Felicity, I'll go to you first. Any thoughts around how to think through this one? Uh, so I think one of the biggest things, and it, this, I'm not putting this into the FASIA framework, I'm just looking at an ethical overlay, I guess, is my biggest thing is that a client should understand the fees and any potential conflict that you have. And in the end, I think clients should then be able to make their own decision. But in this case, if you're not telling a client that you're going to be getting fees because of the advice that you're giving them, then I think that that's a conflict and I think it's unethical. The grey area is if you tell the client and they're okay with it, mm. does that make it okay? So, Catherine, what's your take on it from a very frameworked point of view? Mm. Um, I had a bit of an overlap actually with your idea. So if we think about standard three, which is about conflict of interest, um, there could be a conflict of interest if it was built in that uh, the client or their SMSF would then be serviced by your um, SMSF admin office. But I think if that was one of the potential services providers that they had the choice between to actually get their admin servicing done by, then that's not a conflict of interest to me, it seems, just from those basic sentences. Um, I'd also look at the implications of uh, Standard 8, looking at the records of that. So how is it that we communicate to clients? Um, we know that when auditing is done, they just pick up the file. There's no, oh, but I, I remember I did say to them they had a choice. No, no, no. What, show me the documentation that showed the SMSF admin options to them. Do you, did you have reliable um, referral places that you refer to that actually give really good uh, service and charge also fair fees to the client and that you don't get a benefit from referring to as well as your own firm? Were they able to choose that? Having all of that recorded that it was clearly communicated and formally communicated to the client? Um, and also standard seven, if we look at like informed consent, which really overlaps a lot with what you were saying before, Felicity. I think, um, yeah, there's, there can't be any third party benefits, but I think in that, in that particular situation, it's not really that benefits come from a third party being the associated firm. It's more just that that's another, that, that is an option for the client is to have the SMSF admin done by the associated kind of in-house firm is one of the choices. So I don't, I don't see it, uh, that as being a huge issue. And standard seven also, that's a very long standard, that standard. Uh, it also talks about fees being fair. And so, again, if, if it's really very clear that you can say, well, we're not getting any unnecessary benefit here, the fees that, that we charge for SMSF admin are the same as what this other really reliable, amazing firm charges, or within the ballpark, then, yeah, that's another way, I think, to, mm. to have that that is, it is a scenario that could happen. Mm. Yeah, but it is interesting because yeah. if that advisor was already their tax accountant, say in the past I haven't been your financial planner, I might have my licence, but I've been your accountant, and now you come to me and as a part of this I'm now going to say, oh, yes, and we think you should have an SMSF. 
then are you really giving a choice of a provider? Mm. It be, because you're you're not coming from it just as a planner, you are already there as their accountant. Uh huh. The other direction. And so, mm. and this is where I think there's always this grey area it, because you can't call up Fasir or someone and go, "Hey, I've got this. What am I allowed to do?" So, it's not always a black and white yes or no answer. It comes down to I think how are you applying that framework. Why are you doing what you're doing? And obviously I've taken all of that into account. Mm. But I don't know if you're an accountant how you can really say that, look, I'm giving them a choice. Oh, look, I've been doing this for 10 years for you. Now I'm going to recommend an SMSF. But you can go and use these people for your admin if you'd like. I can't see it happening. Mm. And and we're really in a, um, the, the code of ethics takes us to a, a bit of a, a post-disclosure world in a way, in that disclosing um, what it seems to be doing is, is, is saying that disclosure is not enough anymore. I think the question, it's not about the disclosure. The question, okay. And I think that's the interesting part about the yeah. whole disclosure story mm. is because, yeah, disclosures were never going to be enough. Like, you know, in your interpersonal relationships, it's not okay to just disclose and act badly mm. and say, but I told you, I told you I was like this. Mm. Um, it's, it's just not the way it works, mm. uh, and especially not in a professional sense. In a professional sense, yeah, it's very much: is this decision, is this action okay? Is there there can't be a conflict of interest? So deal with that. Deal with the issue. Is there any are there any third party benefits? Deal with that, and then it's from there that you move forward. So if you can make sure that, that there's no structural issues there, then it becomes a matter of giving the client choice and clearly articulating that, but not necessarily. You know, trying to get get them down a, a specific path through disclosure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great. Uh, okay. So the next one within the family, I've often come up to four generation. I've I've often come to four generations with one family as clients, jointly and separately through the company and SMSF, family trusts, and each individual. Advice to minimise tax for one generation may create a tax liability for the next. Estate planning to ma- uh, maximise inheritance for one generation might lead to a compromised retirement decision for the other. How do I manage my obligations to each client while maximising outcomes for all? Now, again, to you, Felicity, first. Uh, so we have had this kind of situation and in the end we've had to disengage from a party of, in that client. So we've had cases where we've acted for parents and then children and there is clearly a conflict in what their goals are. So if they both had the same goals, then maybe you could work around that, but there were very clearly different goals around what should happen with parents' money. Um, And in the end, we said we can only act for one person because we can't possibly sit on one side of the table and say, I think you should do this because this is the best thing for you. And then go into the next meeting with your kids and go, and I think you should do this, but it's conflicted with what I've just said to your parents. I I, I can't see how that works. Mm. Um, when they're all aligned, so company, trust, super, but they're all essentially you're answering to the one client, then you're looking after that client's position. But if you have that intergenerational and you're dealing with a sum of money that affects those people differently and for some of it it's going to be for some of them it's going to be more beneficial to the other. I don't know how you can be that client's advocate 
and and we see our role as a client advocate. So you can't possibly give the best to both clients. Hmm. So we would we would have to distance ourselves from one of them. Yeah, or or multiple in this case by the sound yeah. of it. Um, I guess that the question is: At what point does that become clear that um, you need to distance yourself from one or or, or multiple uh, individuals uh, as part of the the, the process? Um, Catherine, what are your thoughts on this one? Because I think it's a common one, actually. Very common. And I think even if we looked at an individual, so this this scenario is really interesting with all the various family members, but. Um, how often, Felicity, would you have a client that comes in, individual client, with conflicting goals? Oh, so if we have a couple, we would say that that's a very common situation that they have conflicting goals, particularly when you get to know them a lot better. But it is in that instance, it's joint money. And so part of our role then is to create that give and take between both of them and know that, okay, well, this is going, this is going to look better, but in the end it's still your family, it's it's a joint asset essentially, it's your household asset. I think it's different when it's inter- intergenerational. Mm. Mm. It reminds me of a scenario we did in a previous episode where um, the conversation was around can you advise, you know, both sides of, of a divorce um, and I presume that's a, a common one as well. Um, and And I think the conclusion was, Ultimately, the conclusion was that you can't, you actually can't advise both the client, the, the, the husband and the wife post-divorce. Is that, would you agree with that, Felicity, or do you think that you I can? would, and I think sometimes yeah. if you're questioning this, think of someone, a different profession in the same situation. So could you have the same family lawyer dealing for both people in a divorce? No. Well, you know, they might be able to draft up some paperwork because they've both agreed to something. But if they've got differing views, differing goals, different outcomes that they want from it, then you can't possibly be the advocate for both of them. You just can't. Hmm. So sometimes when we're faced with those, we like to think about, well, if you're a doctor, what could you do? If you're a family lawyer, what would you do? Because we're trying to hold ourselves to the standard of a profession. Hmm. So I don't think that you can deal for both. I think once they're separated almost, one advisor could deal with one and one advisor could deal with another. Then you're dealing with an amount of money for that person and you're advocating for the right thing for that person. During a divorce, you, I, don't, I just don't think that you can advocate for both. But back to this scenario, one of the things that, that came at me reading this one is that there's also this kind of greater good um, sense and mm. and the feeling that I that I get here from whoever wrote this one was that um, perhaps the advisor has a better opportunity to have to be able to get the get a better outcome for all parties involved if they have see through across you know the different generations and their potentially their clients. So in theory, the advisor could be thinking, well, um, you know, I could get a great outcome both for, you know, the parent in a situation or, and or the, you know, the, the child um, if I was able to have see-through into all those portfolios, perhaps better outcomes than separate advisors might might get. Is that something that you read into it as well, Catherine? Or? But I, I think even with that, yeah. 
Like firstly, you're talking to, let's say your first, your first clients were parents. And so as an advisor, you'd say, look, this is what I would recommend. This is the best thing for you. But it's really important that you know this is going to have implications for your kids. And these are the implications for that. And I, I would think from our client base, nine out of ten of those are then going to turn around and say, well, I don't want to negative, negatively impact the kids. As long as I'm meeting my goals, I, I might not do what is financially best for me right now because it is for my greater good. But that's their greater good. My, my role is to facilitate what's important to them, not necessarily what was important to the kids and they didn't want the parents to do that because now I have no inheritance because you've spent it all. Hmm. What are some of the codes or the, the standards that come up for you in this one, Catherine? There's a few of them. So when you have conflicting goals, the, the common, most common scenario that I've experienced conflicting goals is within a person. So, for example, I have a goal to retire at age 55, but I also have a goal of surfing every day. They are in conflict with each other <laughs> directly. And as an advisor, often you have to have those difficult discussions of yeah. saying, well, let's have a chat about this issue here. And, and it's, they are difficult conversations. So there's, uh, there's standard six. We have to consider the broad effects of our advice the long-term and broad interests of our clients. And there's always this contradictory thing where we want to save clients tax. Every client has this. Every client wants to save tax, but every client wants to live in a country with roads, schools and hospitals, even for the poor. We like it. We like having low crime here in Australia. We like knowing that our neighbours are looked after if they have an accident. So they are in contradiction to each other directly. And that's not even a stated goal. So that's when we start to think, okay, we need to clearly articulate what are the broad effects of the advice and the long-term effects. And if you're dealing with four generations, it's pretty clear that your long-term is at least four generations of explicitly articulating. So the difficulty becomes acting in the best interest. So um, standards two and five, which like explicitly talk about best interest how we have to act in the best interest of each individual client, that's where it becomes a little bit more difficult and like, like Felicity was saying, when you have these yeah, multi-generations. But I think as the advisor, of course, it's kind of an overlooked standard, standard eight, but keeping records of all of these discussions and all of these trade-offs and even any of those discussions that end up with saying, well, I can't advise this particular client or that one. Although in this scenario... Um, it, it makes me think of Lance Meikle who runs um, multifamily office on the Gold Coast and part of their offering is the fact that, no, we bring everyone in. We bring mm. in all the entities mm. and we bring in everyone and if you are uh, a, a family running a family business, we need to be in charge of the business as well. We need to be your business advisors as well effectively or at least liaise directly with other experts in that space because it all impacts each other. Yeah. And so we need to have the top-down view and figure this out as a family. So there are different approaches, I think, and depending on the expertise of the advisor and whether they want to really have those difficult conversations about those intergenerational conflicts between the goals yeah. or whether they just want to say, yeah, best if you guys get advice from someone else and then mm. we do it like that. So how does a practice whose value proposition is intergenerational wealth and having that overview of different families um, navigate some of the other earlier standards that you mentioned there? 
So one of the keys that most of those firms that operate in that space uh, work towards is, I think, the what's the phrase? It's um, passing on your values, not your valuables. <laughs> so it's the, catchy. Yeah. <laughs> and it's really powerful too because none of us want our grandkids to be lazy and wealthy. We want them to be hardworking and happy. So figuring out what are you as a family, what do you care about as a family? What does the wealth give to you even? What, why do you want to have money? Is it so that you can make a scholarship at the uni? What is it, what's it for? It's Surely it's not just so you can buy, buy another jet ski. Mm. It's definitely not for that reason. No one says my life's purpose is to buy another jet ski. So what are you here for as a family? Okay, how, is, how can the wealth support that? And then having that bigger picture values-based discussion. So with that discussion, so long as everyone's on the same page, I think it's easy to end up with balancing the broad effects across generations and across people and those conflicting goals and just and to be able to balance them out, articulate them clearly, have the clients understand them and be able to communicate back to you. That's another key part of, of the advisor's role moving forward. So, And that is the problem, though. Over four generations, you are not going to get everybody with the same values and the same things that are important. And you can sit within two generations and have four siblings, and I can almost guarantee one of those siblings will not have the same values as their parents. So I think that's quite difficult, and it might sometimes on the appearance of it look as though everybody is happy with it, but you have to consider, well, that long-term effect as well. So let's say that's with mum and dad, and mum and dad have instilled their values, and then mum and dad have passed do the values stay the same or do people look at it and go, I wish they'd never done that, you know, because hindsight's a wonderful thing and now because of that you've got this and I don't have that. It, you know, it's an, it's an interesting discussion, I think, trying to balance those different, you know, different core objectives that I think sometimes in those bigger family meetings you also don't really have that really good in like knowledge of everybody's individual motives because mm. I've never seen somebody in a family meeting with their mum or their dad going into aged care going I don't really want that one because there'll be no inheritance left and yet we'll have a phone call afterwards that say will there be any inheritance left if the, if you actually like even on that level there's different motives yeah I want the right thing for my mum or dad but I was kind of figuring I'd get that money and that was going to help me pay off the mortgage one day. Uh, it's very hard to be, com- to be conflict-free, I think, when you're looking at multi-generational advice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And do you think that, Catherine, do you think that the way in which the code is laid out is making it impossible to be able to give that multi-generational advice? Because it sounds like the practitioner, it sounds like Felicity... Um, is arguing that it is impossible Mm -hmm. Um, from her experience. Do you think that it is possible at all? um, I am so overly optimistic on the optimism scale. So (laughs) it's just futile asking me questions like that. I think think if they're aligned, it's possible. Yeah. But I think you have to be realistic and go when they have different things that they want, then who do you serve? Yeah. So Mm -hmm. bringing that out in conversation, documenting... And, uh, and having um, difficult and explicit instructions yeah. where you're in charge of a difficult instruction. 
And maybe there's a unicorn fam, multi-generational family out there that uh, are all aligned in their values and, um, and, are, and are open with each other. So if, uh, if you have one of those clients, then uh, let us know because uh, we'd be interested in hearing from you. Um, look, great. Look, uh, the, the final uh, scenario is a brief one and um, quite an interesting one, I think. So um, you're at a barbecue with your wife or your husband's family uh, and you get on very well with your with your wife or, or husband's brother. Uh, he says that um, you know you know what we have, you know what we have in super, you know what um, what our house costs and and what we have in investments. What do you think we should do? Um, maybe it's a question that a lot of advisors have uh, have got quite regularly um, from um, barbecue chat. But Felicity, I mean, is there anything here that 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 that's interesting for you? Uh, well, we all do get that conversation. Typically somebody says, I know you don't want to talk shop on the weekend, but I just have a quick question for you. Yeah. And my response is always call my receptionist to make an appointment right. and we'll have a look at the whole situation. For me, there, and I don't deal with a lot of family because I don't really want to be talking about it at barbecues either. Yeah. Um, but it's not a barbecue discussion. I don't ask a doctor to... Yeah, take a look. Give me the once over when I'm at a at a barbecue or something like that. If we want to be a professional, part of that comes back to how we are okay, how we want to be treated, and where our professional boundaries are. So I think it's the same as any other profession. You'd you'd say office is closed. I'd really love to talk to you about it. Yeah. Make an appointment and come in as, as a client or yeah. as a potential client. First, first appointment doesn't cost anything. Come on in. Do you, do you think advisors who offer their opinion are doing a bit of a disservice to to their professionalism in a way? Then I do, and I I think while they might say you know everything that we have, if I think of my family, I wouldn't even know everything that my own sisters have. They might think I do. But until you actually sit down and have that yeah. real discussion with them and their partner about the bigger picture, you're giving such a piecemeal piece of advice anyway that that I don't think you're helping them and I don't think you're helping your profession. What do you think about this one, Catherine? I think it's really difficult because I see also, as Felicity does, our obligations as professionals to our community and a lot of the people who ask us these questions, and I haven't been an advisor for years and I still get asked it probably once a fortnight, and I know that most of the people who ask me are not going to do what I say, which is, I know a great financial planner, please give them a call. Like, they will look after you, I guarantee it. Um, and so then the situation becomes, well, if, if you have a feeling like they're not going to call the receptionist and make an appointment with you, what are your obligations to the community to use your expertise? So we're a professional, we act in the public interest. But obviously we don't have the full information. We can never have the full information in that scenario. So we can never give appropriate personal financial advice in that scenario. So it's, it's physically impossible. But at the same time, of course, we don't want to sabotage our, or at least I don't, the Brit that's the British heritage. <laughs> Never have a conflict with anyone and definitely don't say, oh, I couldn't, I couldn't give you advice on that. 
Rather than that, try and make sure that the relationship stays strong. You you still have a good relationship with your brother-in-law and somehow figure out a way uh, to have that discussion. But I I see it as as very difficult, a very difficult discussion to have, to even to do. So the right thing is by law cannot give personal advice without having a full understanding of their situation and presenting a statement of advice. Mm. So it's clear, the law, there's no grey area there. Mm. You have to refer them to your receptionist to make a booking with you or to another advisor. Uh, But the practicality of that with our obligations to our community make that a little bit murkier, I think. Mm. Look, um, thanks very much both for your time. You've been uh, really generous. So um, I appreciate, uh, appreciate all the insights. Thanks, Catherine and Felicity. It's been a pleasure. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Ethics and Professionalism podcast. A quick reminder that you can earn CPD points by visiting our website. If you'd like to submit a scenario, please send me an email for a chance to have it featured on an upcoming episode. In the meantime, please keep an eye on our channels to stay updated on future episodes.